And uh, I want to echo what Tim said. Well, first off, my name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Tim Udodge, who's uh, leading us in worship. But I, w- I just want to echo what he said. Welcome. If you're visiting, if you're a newcomer, or it's your second or third time, if there's any question we can answer or anything we can do for you, let us know. One thing that we probably don't tell as, as often as we should that long-timers you know, would know is if you have a young child who might start crying or, or just, you know, be a distraction, there's a cry room on, on the other side of the lobby, and you can still watch the service, listen to the service over there. And as we say from time to time, if you have a young child with you and you feel like that child has kind of become a distraction and you walk out with your child, no one will stop you. <laughs> Ever. So uh, it's not forced, but it's allowed. So we wanted to let you know that. We've, uh, we've started a new sermon series recently, and we're looking at the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. It's a big book. It's 28 chapters worth. And instead of looking at the, at the whole book, every chapter, every passage, we're going to look at a theme that's just really a huge deal in the New Testament, and it really shows itself in the Gospel of Matthew. The theme is the kingdom, and sometimes it says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or just the kingdom but it's really a big deal in Matthew. So we're going to look at that, um, Lord willing, until until Advent and see what we can find. So this morning, I'm drawing from three different passages in Matthew. It's in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. But before I read it, let me throw a statement out to you and see what you do with this. Here's the sentence, and and I want you to think about how how does this sound to you. The love of pets affects what we do. The love of pets affects what we do. Now, it would be, I'm, you know, don't raise your hand, but it would be interesting to go through the room and see, when I, when I said the love of pets, how many of you thought of my love for the pets? And how many of you thought about the pets' love for me or for us? And if you're in the latter crowd, that tells me that you have dogs and not cats. <laughs> I think. I'm not sure. I think it's probably the maybe. But, um, but either one of those work as far as the English language, the love of pets. That could mean our love for the pets. That could mean the pets' love for us. Both, both would be true. That love affects what we do. There are t- Really, this would be the case in any written language probably, but, but even in the Bible, sometimes there's a statement that's made, and it could mean at least a couple of different things, and just, you know, the sort of rule number one of interpreting the Bible, the golden rule of interpreting the Bible, is that the Bible interprets itself. The Scriptures interpret themselves. If something over here is hard to understand, look at other places in the Scripture that speak to it more clearly and bring that to bear on what's not clear. Sometimes in the Bible there's a statement, it could mean two things, or it could mean three things, and maybe... Both those things, or all three of those things in the rest of the Bible are true. So it's hard to say exactly what the writer meant. I'm going to read these passages. I want you to listen for an identical phrase in all three passages. This is a big deal in the Gospel of Matthew. And what I want to try to unpack is this phrase could mean at least a couple of different things. And they're both true. All right? Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, 
John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapter 10, verse 5. These these twelve, that's the apostles, these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we get to do what we're doing. And uh, if, if we've come in this morning and it's a joy to be doing what we're doing, of singing and confessing and hearing assurance of good news, of greeting one another, uh, and of hearing your word. If that's joy, we thank you for that joy. If this is hard for us to be here, help us. Help all of us. Lord, if it's hard for us to be here, thank you for your mercy to bring us here together. And it's to you that we look to teach us, to open up your word, to shed light where we don't understand. And it's in your son's name that we ask this. Amen. An older man who's uh, actually been a teacher of mine and, and, a, and a friend of mine was talking about uh, this, this exchange that he had with his wife. And, and this was the occasion for it. He was working with a guy who... Um, Close to his age, older than me, but maybe a little bit younger than this man. But I'd lived, you know, lived a good bit of life and been married for a while. And and this man was telling uh, colleagues and other people, especially younger, younger men who were married, he was saying, "Look, you need to have a date night with your wife. That's just something that you need as a young man, as a young husband, to build into your life. You need to have a date night." With your wife, and um, so then this older man that worked with him said, "Yeah, I go on dates with my wife, but I never had like a built-in every Thursday night is date night." So one day he came home and he asked his wife, "What do, what do you think about this guy saying that these younger husbands ought to have date night? What do you think about date night?" You know what she said? She said, "If you're married to me, every night's date night." <laughs> And, and again, I, I know him. I know that, like, they went on dates. He would take her out. They would do special things and go on special trips. But I, if, if I understand right, I think what she was communicating was, like, there's not just supposed to be this time where we're on, and then there are these long stretches where you just don't even think about me, you know, <laughs> or you're hardly attentive to me, and then you switch back into this gear called date night. We're married. 
Every night, every day is date night, date, date day. All right, let me ask you this question. If the biblical account is true, and just, I mean, I think you've probably gathered this, but especially if you're visiting, uh, the vantage point of our church is that the, the biblical accounts are true. So if the biblical accounts are true, that everybody and everything was created by God, and human beings, male, female, bear the image of God, and that what we were created to do is not primarily to have jobs and and get a house. What we were primarily made to do was to know God and relate to this God who made us, whose image we have, and to know each other deeply and be known by each other and care for the world. But to do all this unto God. All right, if that account is true, how many minutes of, of our day should be God minutes? Or how many, how many days of the week should be God days? And I suspect that you could tell from the way I'm asking it that the answer would be every single one of them. And that would be true. But, okay, let me ask you this question. And you don't have to answer, but just think about it. Have you ever just looked up at even, okay, I, and we never assume that everybody in the room is on the same page spiritually. But let's say for someone who is here and is a professing, not just believer in God, but a believer in Jesus Christ. Have you ever looked up at the end of the day and thought, I don't remember thinking about God today. Have you ever looked up at the end of a week and thought, I, I have no recollection of thinking about God consciously this whole week? Why didn't we? Anyway, I, I don't think anybody would be surprised by the answers. I mean, what kind of things would we say? Work is just relentless, and it's coming at me, and it works its way into every crevice. And, uh, and, I, and I have aging parents. And, uh, and I have a friend right now who's in crisis, and, it, and it's taking a lot of my, my time and energy. Or, or I have a young child. Or I just get distracted. Or uh, I think religion is important, but I don't know. I just slip back into doing my thing, and I'm on autopilot, and I don't think about it till something just makes me think about it. Listen, those are old realities. You know? like, that is the human condition. That's not new. That's not unique to you or to me. The world's always been that way. The world was that way, and people were that way when God sent His Son, who is God, into the world. He had always been God, but He took on human flesh. He sent Him into a world like that, relentless bosses and unreasonable bosses and bosses who have no boundaries. That's, that was in the first century too. And my parents are getting old and this child worries me and I just get distracted and I don't think about God. He steps into that world and, and He essentially says this, there are no date nights with God. All the minutes are His. All the days are His. All our lives and all our hearts and all our bodies and all our souls are His. What was the phrase that you heard in, in every one of these passages? First, it's John the Baptist getting everybody ready for the Messiah, and then it is the Messiah, Jesus, and then it's the apostles that the Messiah appoints and sends out. What do they all say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
What does that mean? That's what I want to try to unpack. And um, I've, got to, I've, I've got to go teachy, and we've even got to talk about grammar. Okay, so, so buckle in, and I hope it's going to be worth it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the, in the translation that we're using, the, the English Standard Version, that phrase at the, at the end, is at hand, is a translation of one Greek word. It's a verb. And the reason I'm, I'm going to spend a little time on this is in English, if I say such and such is at hand, like if we say fall is at hand, which is great, but it, it, that feels kind of flat. And it's kind of like, okay, good for fall. Way to go, fall. You're at hand. But the verb, here's two things I want you to know about this Greek verb. The first thing is it's an active verb. In other words, it. New Testament Greek, this, this verb is saying that the kingdom of God actively did something. It's not just stating a fact. And here, this is really teaching. You know how verbs, I hope you remember this from school, verbs have different tenses. Like future tense would be, I am going to travel. In the future, that's the future tense. I'm going to travel. If I talk about last year, I traveled last year. That's the past tense. There's a verb tense called the perfect. And the fact that you're like even hearing me out at this point before 9 o'clock in the morning about verb tenses tells me that you're kind people and, and charitable people. The perfect tense expresses something that happened in the past, but the results of it are felt in the present. Like, you know, perish the thought, but let's say the United States was overthrown by an enemy. If, if you made the statement, the United States has been overthrown, you'd be talking about something in the past, but, you know, the effects of it, the realities of it would be showing themselves every day in your life, right? That would, that's what the perfect tense does. When John and when Jesus and when the apostles say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they're saying the kingdom of heaven has done something actively and it's happened, but the effects, the results of it are right now. What does that mean? Because the verb is a, is a verb of approach. The kingdom of heaven approached. The, a, a better translation might be, the kingdom of heaven has come near actively in the past, but that affects right now. How has it come near? All right, now here's, here's where it could mean at least a couple of different things. If, if I'm standing right here and I say, Broad Street is near. What do I mean? In space or in distance, on the other side of this wall, just cross the parking lot, and you're at Broad Street. In space, distance, Broad Street is near, right? But if you walked outside this morning and you thought, hey, fall is near. Didn't it feel good to walk outside this morning? Fall is near. You don't so much mean in spatial distance. You mean in what? Time. It's coming. In time near. The kingdom of heaven has come near is true in both those ways. It's near in space and it's near in time. Now, let's look at those. How has, not only in the first century, but like right now, 
how has the kingdom of heaven in space, in physical distance, come near? I remember a friend of mine that I had in college, uh, also named Brian, he, he told me about the experience he had when he saw Paul McCartney perform in Birmingham, and he, he was from Birmingham. And, and my friend Brian played the bass, which Paul McCartney played the bass. So he, he, he grew up listening to the Beatles. His parents listened to the Beatles. That was just kind of in the landscape of his childhood. He goes to this concert, and out walks Paul McCartney by himself, and he plays and sings Yesterday. And my friend Brian said, it was just bizarre. Because, like, all his life that had just been this song that had existed. I mean, it just kind of felt like it's a song that's been around for 1,000 years. But he's looking at this man thinking, that is a beetle. You know, like... You're either pre-Beatles or post-Beatles, but that's like a huge dividing line of Western culture. That is a Beatle. That's the guy that wrote these. He's, he's singing it and doing it right now. There, he's in Birmingham. He's in my hometown. There he is right there. He said it just was a, a weird moment to see that he's real, and he's right there, and I could go touch Well, security would stop me, but like I could go touch him. Um. God is the king of Israel. There were kings of Israel, but the ultimate, real, true, abiding king of Israel always was and always will be God. God became man and didn't just step onto the earth. He stepped into Judea and lived in a town and walked roads, and he was right there. Like, when you see in the Gospels, Jesus go into the temple, and in this place that's the court of the Gentiles, which is supposed to be a place where people who aren't ethnically Jewish can go there, and they can talk to God, and they can pray to this God that made them, and they bear His image too. If God's worked in their heart to do so, That space was occupied by people selling stuff and changing money. When you see in the Gospels, Jesus go into that space and get hacked off. And throw those tables over and wipe those coins off and run off the money changers and not apologize for doing that. You are seeing God. You are seeing the forever King of Israel... He is right there in their midst. When you, see, uh, when you see someone come up to Jesus needing healing, like a leper, and when you see Jesus do something that, strictly speaking, was against the law of Moses, to touch a leper, that was forbidden for us. For him to put his hand on a leper and say, I am willing to clean you. Be clean cleansed. It's not a leper anymore. When you see that, that, you are seeing the king of Israel. When he is stretched out on the ground, on a cross, and there's a Roman soldier spiking him to it, and there's a plaque over his head down there on the cross, on the ground. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. It is. I mean, this is the king of Israel saying, Father, 
forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. In actual geographic, real physical space, when the Messiah showed up, the kingdom, because of the king's presence, had come near and was right there. But also in time, the kingdom has come near. Um, if, if you ever find yourself in New Orleans, and I hope you will, uh, if you have some free time, go to the World War II Museum in New Orleans. It's, it's actually been voted one of the best museums, not just in the, in the country, but in the world. And if you have the opportunity to go, watch the, I think it's an IMAX movie or 4D or whatever they call it, that Tom Hanks narrates. It, it is an unbelievable summary of World War II. And one of the visuals that they give you is just, you know, these, these really cool graphics of the Earth and Europe and Japan and what's going on at the same time on both sides of the globe. But when you see a visual of what happened at D-Day, it's amazing. Because here's the thing. After D-Day, and I, most of you know this, after D-Day, it got, it got worse. It was, there's just so much blood and so much guts and so much loss and so much sadness and so much suffering. But when you see the visual of what D-Day was, when you watch it, you just can't help but think the conclusion at that point was inevitable. Like, the Allied forces are going to be victorious in Europe. And they were. Suffering, loss, death, sadness, conclusion is just as much as it can be in a fallen world, inevitable. And that's what happened. And lots of preachers have said this, you know, and I've said this before, but it's good to hear it. Once the Messiah comes, but especially for people like us who live in between His death and resurrection and His return, we live in between D-Day and V-Day. And that's not corny. That's biblically true. We live in between D-Day and V-Day. The conclusion is inevitable at this point. But he hasn't come back yet. And so it doesn't look like that and it doesn't feel like that. When we get through, when I get through preaching and I close in prayer, we're going to say the Nicene Creed together. The Nicene Creed is core Christianity. One of the things we're going to talk about in that creed or say is that He's going to come and judge the living and the dead. That there was a first advent, and there's going to be a second advent, and we live in between those. When Jesus comes back and judges the living and the dead, He will not be more king than He was at the first. It will be more obvious, it will be more manifested, but when he comes back, he will not be more king than he was then or that he is right now. The kingdom has come near, not just for people in Judea in the first century. It's come near to us. The king has come and the king is coming back. We live in a world with kingdom realities. And as I said last week, 
That means we've got to deal with him whether we think we do or not or whether we feel like dealing with him or not. All right? So the kingdom of heaven has come near. Whichever of those two was meant, they're both true. What are we supposed to do with that? What we're supposed to do, and this is the importance of the word for, that we're told to do something for because the kingdom of heaven has come near. What's the thing we're supposed to do? Repent. Uh, That's a word that we talk about a lot in here. And the reason is it's a word that the Bible talks about a lot. Uh, God sends prophets to the world, and the prophets say, Repent. And then God sends John the Baptist to get people ready for the Messiah. And John the Baptist says, Repent. And then the Messiah shows up, God's own son, and he says, Repent. And then the Messiah chooses 12 apostles and unleashes them on the world and says, Go tell people that they must repent. Do you kind of get the feeling that repentance is important? It's crucial. But the question is, what do we think repentance is? And, I, and I, folks who've been around have heard me say this over and over, and I don't mind being repetitive about this. I got this wrong for too long, and I want you to do better than me. Let, let me read you something. This is, uh, this is from the Book of Green. Just kidding. This is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And if you've never heard of that, this, this is part of our church's and our denomination's statement of belief. And a catechism is a statement of belief in question-answer format. It's made for memorizing. Now, this was written in the 1640s, okay? The language is a little bit old-fashioned, but listen to what it says about repentance. What is repentance unto life? Answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. And before we go any further, do you know what that means? Repentance is something that God gives you. He requires it, and He gives it to you. He gives the thing He requires, which is awesome. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now, I know that's a lot there, but here's what it's saying. Repentance is when somebody sees two things and they come through maybe in a way they've never come through before. The first is, my sin is awful. Our sin is awful. It's not manageable and it's not funny. It's waging war on my soul. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is that Christ is merciful. He not just can show mercy, He loves to give mercy to people who need a ton of mercy. And on the basis of those two things, I'm really sinful and Christ is really merciful. A person hating their sin turns to God, turns to Him. For the longest time I thought, what you do is you turn from your sin and you start obeying. You turn from disobedience to obedience. 
when you repent, behaviors change, uh, lifestyle changes. That's called the fruit of repentance, but repentance is not making all the changes right away. Repentance is saying, my sin is unfixable. And turning to God and saying, have mercy on me. And here's the amazing thing. People who don't, have never done that, need to repent. And people who have repented need to repent. I mean, what, like, if you're here and either you know that you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, like, you know, I've, I've never done whatever you're describing, repenting, or you're, or you're thinking, I don't think I've ever done that. What would it look like to do it? And it's not our place to, like, put words in your mouth, but here's what it might sound like. God, I love blank more than you. And that blank could be anything from I love work more than you to I love bourbon more than you. It could be I love my family more than you. It could be I love oxycodone more than you. And look where it has gotten me. Help me. I mean, like, do you realize that Jesus told a parable about two guys going to the, to the uh, temple to pray. And one of them knows tons about the Bible, and he thanks God that he obeys the Bible. And there's another guy there, and he's a swindler. He's a huckster. He's a tax collector. And Jesus says, this guy won't even look up to heaven, but he just, he just hits himself. And he says, man, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus never says that he makes any behavioral changes yet. And the way Jesus tells the parable and says, I tell you, that man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And we kind of want to run in and say, you need to attach the part about, and then he changed his tax practice, and he paid all that money back. And Jesus never says that. He says, he doesn't even look at God, but he turns to him in his heart and says, help me, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, that guy went home justified before God. Today, today, if you know that you don't know Jesus Christ, if you know that you've never turned to Him, on the one hand, the Bible says you must turn to Him. You must repent. But you know what? It also says you may do that. You may do that today. You, you, may, you may say to God, if this is something you have to give to me, would you give it to me? Because we can't conjure it up. But what if you already are a Christian? What if you are someone who has repented? What do you need to do? We need to repent. What does that look like? Um, it looks like a bunch of things. For instance, um, unless this is just the most unusual, atypical room in the earth, a lot of people in this room are looking at and reading pornography. And, I'll go further, unless this is just a super unusual room full of people, this anomaly in Greenville, South Carolina, more women than ever are looking at and reading pornography. Uh, you mean people who aren't Christians, right? Well, could be, but Christians are. I thought Christians couldn't look at pornography. Well, it depends on what you mean by couldn't. 
right? Because if by couldn't you mean shouldn't, true. If you mean may not, true. If you mean don't have the ability to do it, wrong. Christians look at and read pornography. And it's hurting us. So let me ask you this. What is the answer for the Christian who looks at or reads pornography? Is the answer simply stop doing it? And I know this is going to sound like a weird thing for a preacher to say, but just stopping is not the answer. Amen. Amen. Would I want you to stop? Absolutely. But the answer is to turn to Him and say, have mercy on me. Because if we don't commune with Him at a heart level, if we take pornography out of the equation, something else will be put in it. A new idol. A new false love. A new way to self-medicate. To repent is the answer. To repent, and it's hard. And it's life-giving. Let's think about it another way. A Christian getting up early in the morning to read her Bible, is that a good thing? And of course, as a preacher, I want to say, absolutely, it depends. It depends. And, and don't ever lose sight of the fact that Jesus used His harshest, most severe words with people who studied the Bible all the time at a deep level. If we wake up in the morning to read a Bible to feel like I'm a good person and because I did this, I'm going to have a good day, that could actually be counterproductive to your soul. And if getting up and reading the Bible is a way, like actually with my body and soul, to not just say to God, but to say to myself, texting is not my king. Emails are not my king. Incessant work is not my king. Sleep is not my king. Jesus is my king. And I might read it and be on the edge of my seat, and I might read it and be groggy as crud. But when we do that as an act of liberation, that's a good thing. For wherever we are... Christian or non-Christian, let me, let me just leave you with this. Um, we, I, I heard an interesting comment in community group this past, uh, this past Wednesday. Married couple were talking. They're both runners. And um, the husband said, you know what? I, I heard my wife say something, and I realized we had experienced a paradigm shift about running. Because um, what I had been hearing prior to this point was, uh, someone told me at supper last night that I cross my arms and I do this. I hope that's not too distracting. I just realized I, just realized I was doing it again. Sorry. My precious elbow. Love that elbow. Close relationship with my elbow. But this husband said, you know, prior to this point, what I heard my wife saying was, ugh, I need to go run or I'll go run. He said, and then the other day I heard her say, I get to run. He said, ah, you know. There's been a change. There's, like, that's a great shift. And I want to say before we wrap up for all of us, because John the Baptist said it sweepingly. Jesus said it sweepingly. The apostles said it sweepingly. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. 
The bad news is, if we do not repent, we perish. We aren't who we ought to be in this life, and then we are under the justice of God going into death. That's the bad news. And part of the good news is that we must repent. But what I, what I want to leave you with is, today, we get to repent. We get to repent. Today is a phenomenal day to repent. Whether you know Him yet or not, to turn to Him and say, I love such and such more than you. And look where it's gotten me. Have mercy on me and change me. Repent. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, would you grant to us the repentance that we need? It's, it's like us and it's very American for us to think that we'll just hear this sermon and we will just manufacture repenting and we can't do it unless you work in our hearts. For the woman here, the man here, who has never for the first time turned to you and said, have mercy on me. Would you give that to that person, even right now, even this morning? Unseen to us, but seen and enjoyed by you. To the person who has repented, has turned to you, but needs fresh new repentance, needs repentance unto life. Lord, please work in our lives. Grant us repentance. Would you put in our hearts the enjoyment of your King? And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. We have the opportunity now to confess our faith. This is, uh, um, this is a creed that's older than the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Uh, it's not obligatory that you say it. You are invited to confess your faith together. Let's stand together, and I'll ask the question, and if you would use the creed to respond. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in one God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. 
I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Grab a seat.